Hi, this is author and former presidential speechwriter James C. Humes. When you look up at the sky tonight and you see that moon, you think upon the fact that this one person had the experience of his life in helping to write the words that are on the moon in the plaque that was left on the Lem vehicle. Your men from the planet Earth first set foot upon the moon, July 1969. We came in peace for all mankind. And you're listening to the Dr. Sky Show. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Dr. Sky Show, heard exclusively here on TeenTalkNetwork.com and on our flagship radio station, KFNX, News Talk Radio 1100, the undisputed 50,000-watt powerhouse of the desert southwest with all of those 50,000 watts in check. And also, I'd like to take this moment to thank all the radio stations around the nation that air the Dr. Sky Report. And once again, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dr. Sky Show, a unique show that we formulated some 12 years ago concerning important guests from the realms of astronomy, space, aviation, and weather, and many celebrity guests sprinkled in between these already very popular programs. And from time to time, ladies and gentlemen, special guests from the historical side of the world. And today, ladies and gentlemen, it is a distinct privilege and honor to welcome former presidential speechwriter to five presidents and author himself on a most amazing series of books, the Wit and Wisdom series, plus a whole lot of other relevant books for those of you in the know who, of course, would love to learn more about how our political system works from the historical side of many of the great presidents and great leaders of the world. And also, our special guest, Mr. James C. Humes, is also part responsible for the actual wording on the amazing Apollo 11 plaque that, of course, everyone in the world knows, the most historic of all the Apollo missions, the first landing, where humans set forth and set foot, that is, on the surface of the moon back in July of 1969. And with that, it's a privilege and honor to welcome author and former presidential speech writer, Mr. James C. Humes, to a discussion here with Dr. Skye. Good afternoon, sir. Good to be with you, Dr. Skye. Well, thank you so much, and I really appreciate your time, Mr. Humes. Your bio is so long that it would probably take us a half an hour to <laughs> read this, and it's a most impressive bio, ladies and gentlemen. But, Mr. Humes, I'd love you to start the show off today by just telling us more about as being a former uh, White House speechwriter to five presidents, describe this time in your life, and to who, which presidents, of course, were you the speechwriter and participating with? Well, it's a bit exaggerated. I did one for Eisenhower at the end of his, uh, in uh, 1916 December, and then I did some, uh, I did two years for Nixon, and I did for Ford, helped Ford write his memoirs, and then I did it on contract for Reagan and Bush Sr. Uh, it's a great honor to uh, write for presidents, and they were all uh, a bit different. Nixon uh, edited you for substance, Reagan for style. Reagan was the best deliverer, but he also was the best speechwriter. He could write a better speech than any of his uh, Writers, he uh, and for one reason, and and you should know that, and, and I know in radio, yes, he knew how uh, to write for the ear, and most of the writers who come to the White House are journalists. 
and they write for the eye, the printed page. Very interesting. Uh, of course, uh, President Reagan, uh, of course, a great career, starting off, I believe, in Iowa as a radio sports broadcaster. This is an interesting twist that uh, I was not familiar with. So basically, he could write uh, a pretty darn good speech on his He own. could write. He was the best speechwriter in the White House since Lincoln. He wrote 10,000 of his uh, scripts for radio, and that doesn't include his uh, when he was chief of the banquet circuit in the late 50s and 60s, where... And so he knew how to speak to an audience. Wow. And as you know, sir, from a previous radio show that we had you on uh, earlier in February of 2011, marking the 100th birthday anniversary of former President Ronald Reagan, I do appreciate your time there, sir. But some of the other things that you might want to pass on, our audience would love to hear. I mean, some of the side of the wisdom of uh, President Reagan and also the wit. I, I think it would be an interesting time to introduce that to the audience. Well, Reagan had that faculty which is so important to presidents that he could laugh at himself. And he was a great storyteller. He uh, probably the greatest since uh, Lincoln. And he used storytelling as an armor against intimacy. He was not a person you could get close to. He was genial. But he had, uh, it was said he had a very friendly man who had one friend. And he married her, Nancy. He he would um, use humor like Lincoln did to kind of deflect uh, intrusions on intimacy. So he, he never really, um, but he was so likable. I never really knew my name. He said, well, you're the Churchill fellow. And he proceeded to tell me <laughs> a Churchill anecdote, imitating him. How interesting. And I also understand, Mr. Humes, a big part of your life, uh, of course, an inspiration at an early age. Uh, you also writing the series that we're going to get into, the Wit and Wisdom series. Uh, Winston Churchill. Well, yeah, I met Churchill when I was 18. He was 78. And he said, young man, study history. And history like all the secrets of statecraft. Wow. And so I did <laughs> did study history in a sense, but I certainly studied Churchill, written five books on him, but uh, that in a sense led me to the White House in a, in a sense. Wow, uh, a very fascinating story. And so I think again, people misunderstand uh, mm -hmm. the role of the speechwriter. Uh, the president... If you uh, watched The Queen with Helen Mirren, there was, she had a speechwriter, but also Prime Minister Blair had a speechwriter. Well, for the president, you do both, you play for both roles, chief of state and chief executive. And a lot of the things you do are in the ceremonial role. Sure. Uh, including, you know, writing something uh, for the moon. It's uh, the uh, ceremonial role. And presidents, I, I think people think that the president, uh, the, that the speechwriter is a great guru who puts ideas into the mind of the great man. Uh, presidents don't want new ideas. They, they can rock boats and rattle cages. They want cliches. 
cliches written up to sound new and beautiful. You are a word cosmetician. Maybe your wife goes and gets her hair done and looks, uh, she wants to look beautiful. Sure. Presidents want to sound beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, for the uh, Kennedys, uh, he could have said, uh, be patriotic. But Ted Sorensen wrote for him, you know, ask not what the country could do for you, what you can do for your country, so forth. Sure. Uh, FDR in the second greatest inaugural address, he could have said, don't push the panic button. And, and Roosevelt said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, right? Absolutely. So, uh, what the presidents want to do, obviously, it's like having the best of Madison Avenue. It's more like an advertising campaign. You, that's right. You, and you do, uh, Nixon said something like, uh, uh, Military strength is important, but so is spiritual strength. And, you know, so here's a written, uh, faith may move mountains, but faith without strength is beautiful. But strength without faith is sterile. See a little bit of alliteration, a little bit of rhyme? Absolutely. And uh, that's what you do. So it's memorable through history, I think. That's right. So it's memorable to history. Right. Most presidents are looking for their position in history, and they're obviously narcissistic enough to want to maintain that uh, hundreds of thousands, not thousands of years from now, people will remember them uh, for that's right. way more than they were in their human bodies, I guess. Of course, sometimes presidents you know, pose themselves when Reagan went to Berlin and the State Department wrote his speeches, you know, he mm-hmm. had the speech and they kept crossing out uh, about uh, tear down that wall. But uh, when it finally came to talk, he, he winked at the speaker and, <laughs> and said, if you believe that, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. And uh, so he said it. Sure did. You know, ladies and gentlemen, if you're just joining us, and we're glad that you are, our very special guest for this segment of the Dr. Sky Show, and a true privilege and honor, is former presidential speechwriter and author extraordinaire, and also an individual that we'll talk with more about his involvement with the famous Apollo 11 plaque on the moon. We're speaking of none other than author James C. Humes. Now, Mr. Humes, it's really fantastic listening to your stories because you live the history, and also, as an intense writer, how many books approximately are you an author of, at least at this time? Oh, so, boy. I think 38 or maybe even 40. I don't know. Okay. Depending on whether I count a couple sure. um, that were um, academic and not on the public market, but at any rate. So you have uh, a, a light side to you also. I mean, there's amazing books here that if you could just describe to us, too, not only from the historical side, but podium humor. You also talk about role speakers play and how to prepare a speech. Oh, I, I, yeah, I'm, I've taught speech writing. I, I've taught speaking. That's why this uh, new movie that came out was so interesting to me. They used a little bit from my book on Churchill. Churchill had to overcome stuttering as... Um, he mentions in the movie uh, and some of the things that uh, I have in the book are, 
are the uh, same techniques that uh, uh, King George had to use in order to overcome his stuttering. But because Churchill had a severe stutter, in fact, one of the first times he spoke in the House of Commons, he, he, he fainted and collapsed out of fear. Interesting. I would never have known that. I mean, I would always look at him as a historical figure, as if when he got to the podium, just in my mind's eye, I would think that he was kind of like this rock, you know, that was so confident. But you're telling us definitely yeah, he overcame he, these Some of the things, for example, Churchill said, um, I was advised to um, begin a speech with a, um, a song like Murmur, let me say. And you could see that... Uh, the advisor advised George to do the same thing. You you voice without words, uh, like that. And that's one of the things. Churchill also learned, in order to disguise his stutter, he invented the voluntary stutter. Interesting. That is to emphasize a key word. He would stutter before it. Well, I never knew somebody would even... And so you know, said, let me eat a, uh, this was a most unsorted deed. Only time unsorted is ever used in the English language, unsorted. But he stuttered before it, don't you see? Mm, to underline it. Amazing. So it works both ways. And then, of course, he was less self-conscious about stuttering involuntarily if he was already doing huh. voluntary stutters. Totally amazing. I mean, I would think people would be trying to correct the, stat the stuttering situation, but you're saying it's used for emphasis intentionally in certain types of speeches and presentations where yes. you wanted the words to be emphasized. Hey, what? Uh, hey, uh, Iron Curtain has descended. Hmm. <laughs> Very interesting. Very effective. But tell us more, sir, about your meeting with this most phenomenal individual in history, Winston Churchill. I also understand that you are an officer of the British Empire, and one of the first, if not the first, in the Wit and Wisdom series, if I'm correct, is the book dedicated to what? Winston Churchill. Yes, yes. Well, the, it was, uh, I mean, meeting Churchill, yes, I've met, you know, five or six presidents, some who, more than that, if you count like... Uh, Truman and Carter, who I didn't ever work for, uh, but uh, it was like meeting history. I mean, Churchill was, uh, it was like meeting Napoleon or Julius Caesar when I, I shook agree. hands with him. Sure. He was already history. It's like shaking hands with history when I met Churchill. Most amazing. And where was this, if I may ask? This you? was at Mansion Hall, which is the house of the the, uh, the residential palace of the Lord Mayor of London, and he was hosting a luncheon for the British Commonwealth Prime Ministers uh, two days before the coronation. They were all back to London for it, and he hosted a luncheon for them. How phenomenal. And how uh, young of a man were you when this... I was 18. Wow, what an experience. I mean... You're absolutely right, Mr. Humes. That is a life-changing and memorable experience that uh, very few people uh, have had, and we appreciate you sharing this on all the information we're talking about today here on the Dr. Sky Show. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, if you're just joining us, a phenomenal guest, James C. Humes, former presidential speechwriter and author extraordinaire of well over some 40 books, I'm sure, 
and continuing to keep track is difficult, but also his involvement, as we're going to get to here in just a few moments, with being one of the co-authors and writers of the famous words, simple as they are, on the famous Apollo 11 plaque that still sits on the descent module that sits on the lunar surface, a most amazing time in history. And Mr. Humes, I wonder if this might be the right time to introduce this kind of discussion about Sure. It's certainly appropriate to talk to Dr. Sky on something. (laughs) If you look at the sky tonight and see the moon, Mm -hmm. my grandson once told a fellow uh, uh, young boy going out for trick-or-treating, and he said, do you see that moon? My grandpa wrote on that moon. <laughs> and, uh, so cool. it, you know, it came over from NASA. We, President Nixon told us in June of 1969 that uh, they were shortly about to go to the moon. Of course, we were sworn to secrecy. Wow. And so we, we got a, a draft. There's a book about it, and then we rewrote the draft. Um, Here men from the planet Earth first set foot upon the moon in July 1969. We came in peace for all mankind. Now, uh, it has then on it, uh, well, it had in July 1969 A.D. And uh, Bill Sapphire, who happened to Jewish wonder about that. That is incredible. But you see, this uh, before no one knew if it was known at the time. None of us knew about this. Uh, you know, what's the thing they use now for? Uh, they, uh, I don't know. They use another word for it. Oh, for for dating time. Yeah. No, oh, I'm not too sure what you're referring to, but. When you put down, I see here, I'm looking at a copy of the Lunar Plan, July 1969 A.D., uh, it looks fine to me. I mean, Yeah, I know, but people, because of uh, the Christianity aspect... Oh, I see. That, that was the whole thing. any rate, uh, then Sapphire, right, he said, you know, what if it collapses? What if it fails? So we're, he's, he's thinking about what Nixon should say if it fails. And uh, I thought of uh, Rupert Pruck, the English poet in uh, um, World War One, who died in Greece. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, "If I something, if I, I if I should die, think only this of me: sure. that there's some corner of a foreign field that is forever England." And I said, well, you know, you could say something like there is a corner of the moon that is forever mankind. That is amazing. Um, So I was uh, there in the Oval Office when Armstrong called from the moon. Now, there were 70 of us there, packed like sardines. That must be an incredible story that we're about to hear, being there. And, you know, here's this billion-dollar phone call, whatever it was, coming, uh, and uh, it it doesn't come in all that well. You know, you could hear, his, Mr. President, I, I want to read to you 
um, the word on the plot of rock. And then he reads this, you know, here men from the planet Earth uh, first set foot upon the moon, July 1969. A.D., we came in peace for mankind. And I'm hearing that. Coming from him, the words that I helped uh, formulate, and there are tears running down my face. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, this is the most historic thing, as far as thing, excuse me, the most historic moment, I imagine, for most of mankind for uh, all of modern history. Many people look at this lunar landing, correct? Well, it was, it was certainly a very moving moment in my life. So you're standing there amongst all these folks. I mean, was there, before this was happening, can you describe... Oh, we were watching. You were watching. Yeah, yeah. So everyone had a television, or they had a television... Oh, they had a huge television screen there mm -hmm. in the Oval Office, and we were all watching. Amazing. And again, the heartbeats are racing, the blood pressure's going up on Neil Armstrong, and we all know this. Now we know this, Mr. Humes, and I'm sure you do too, that... Neil Armstrong, of course, uh, had very little fuel left, as the way history tells it now, that he obviously had no choice. Uh, it's either a point where he had to either abort the mission... But we didn't know all that at the time. Right, and that's even more to the point that when these astronauts, of course, set foot on the moon and the lunar module landed, I mean, that's so incredible. I watched it as a young boy of 13, and there you are. I lived in New York City at the time, but there you are, just a few hundred miles to the south, right at the center of government. So tell us well, more well, about mentioned Well, you mentioned, <laughs> you mentioned something about the greatest um, moment in mankind, and I, I, I don't want to correct you, but uh, Richard Nixon said the same thing, and Billy Graham called in to correct. <laughs> it was Jesus Christ first. There you go. Well, I stand corrected. Yeah. <laughs> I stand corrected. In good company. Absolutely. I won't argue with that one bit. But, Mr. Humes, I wanted to read for the audience, if you don't mind, something a little more detailed here. You live the history, which is most important, but this is just a little bit to go along with this. And I quote, Lunar plaques are rectangular stainless steel plaques, nine inches by seven and five-eighth inches across, attached to the ladders of the descent stages of the lunar modules used for Apollo 11 through 17. All of the plaques, as you know, bear facsimiles of the participating astronaut signatures. Two of the plaques, Apollo 11 and Apollo 17, bear a facsimile of the signature of President Richard Nixon. Only the Apollo 12 lunar plaque does not bear a picture of the Earth and is textured differently, too. The Apollo 17's plaque bears a depiction of the lunar globe in addition to the Earth, and the plaques used on the permissions of Apollo 13 through 16 bear the call sign of the lunar module. But, sir... My words can never, you know, do justice, but your story is most impressive. So please continue with this. Well, I'll tell you one very interesting thing. I left the White House and went uh, to the State Department, and they had hired as Assistant Secretary of State Mike Collins, who, of course, was one of the people. He was the guy staying in the in the Lem vehicle, as you remember. Command module pilot, right? Yeah, and... Uh, he became Assistant Secretary of State. Well, his job really was to go around the country and uh, and sell Nixon's foreign policy, the, his kind of, uh, of, of uh, well, he was de-Vietnamizing, de and he was pulling the troops out of Vietnam, and he, uh, he believed we should send arms, uh, but not armies. At any rate, 
he was going out and taking speaking engagements everywhere. Well, the hardest speech I ever had to write was not really for the White House. Mm -hmm. Mike Collins was invited to Cleveland to speak to the Flat Earth Society. Oh, my goodness. I kid you not. <laughs> this it was not a joke. Mm -hmm. Now, you try to describe, it prove to these people that you landed on the moon. Exactly. It's virtually impossible. <laughs> <laughs> they said, well, they know it was a fake because the... Uh, the flag was standing out as if the wind was blowing it. And Chris Collins said, no, we pinned it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, that must have been one of the most difficult assignments. So how did it end? Uh, well, we, you know, we didn't convince them. <laughs> There's none so blind as those who refuse to see. Absolutely. A most incredible story, and you being a part of history. But on a personal note, what does all this mean to you personally, being involved in, again, one of the, if not the second most important event in, in the modern history, or mankind's history, the, the, being the Apollo 11 landing? Describe to us in your own words, what, what's the feeling like to be so oh, close I, to the You know, I tell you, uh, it, in retrospect, becomes even greater, now that I think back on it. Uh, and I would look out sometimes on a clear night and see that moon. Uh, I get very uh, teary. And uh, I watched it with my grandson, a whole picture of landing on the moon in the black, and, and that was a great, uh, um, a great moment for me, grandfather and grandson, to... Uh, try to share that with him, my feelings, and it's uh, it's part of, of history, and in a sense, uh, you know, I have a footnote to history, I'll put it that way. Well, it's a wonderful story, and we are so privileged here, ladies and gentlemen, to hear Mr. Humes' story, as all the great guests that we have and that do appear here on this particular archive. But, sir, in about another five minutes or so for the time remaining in our show today, I wanted to ask your permission to just spend some time reflecting on the Wit and Wisdom series. I mean, they, they go from everyone, from Winston Churchill, who, by the way, and I said this to you before in another interview, you have an uncanny resemblance to Winston Churchill. I find that most amazing. And watching you on C-SPAN, I encourage yeah. many people to just YouTube your name. James. <laughs> yeah, I was at a... <laughs> at a at Sony Studios last week and uh, in uh, Culver City and they had this reception and this uh, this school well it was, anyway they were giving up a choral performance and these, one of these singers came out and said to our choir director do you know Winston Churchill is here said, no 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 he's not oh no no Winston and she was English she said no no, look, he's right over there. <laughs> the man came over to me and he said, I hope you're not offended by this. I said, oh, no, not at all. No, it's amazing. It's like you're like the living embodiment of this man and throughout this Wit and Wisdom series. This is a question that I never asked you on the other show. Of all the presidents that you've written about, who really comes closest to your ideals as far as the one that you have absolutely the most admiration for and, and why? Well, for his principles and the way he communicated them, because I'm a communicator, too. 
you would have to say Ronald Reagan. Sure. But I and enjoyed working with Nixon because Nixon was like the professor you had, Dr. Sky, in school, and he's the one who says, um, who didn't give you an easy A, but said, no, I know you can do better. This is not your best. And so uh, Nixon would make you write it over and over again till you did your best. Whereas uh, George H.W. Bush uh, never corrected it, neither did Ford. So is it possible or fair to say, I mean, this is not an indictment of present or just recent presidents, that maybe many of our presidents are not really the type of, maybe they're not following the, the rules of the road when it comes to the use of the English language or the, the fine art of what, speech writing or learning how to... Well, I mean, Reagan believed that delivering speeches was 90% of leadership, and, um, and you know... Bush Sr. thought, you know, it was a lot of bull, you know. I mean, he he believed, you know, speaking was kind of self-flattery, and he had this New England upbringing that you don't brag, and so he, he, he uh, and he didn't practice his speeches. Now, his son learned that lesson, and though he was not good at Q&A or press conferences, mm-hmm. in a set speech, um, George W. Bush was very good because he would practice and practice and practice, which his father never did. Amazing. Ford, on the other hand, would, you know, he would, you'd write something for him, and then he'd ad lib in the middle of it and, and kind of to make it look like he wrote the whole thing, and he'd sometimes make some blunders when he did it. But, uh,. I helped Ford with his memoirs, and I gave him the title for it, right from the Bible, Ecclesiastes, A Time to Heal. So he, he enjoyed that. Fascinating. Well, I know Mr. Humes, who I'm going to ask counsel of and look for the art of perfecting my own presentations. I certainly know that I could be, like anyone, uh, a recipient, and to be a better speech writer, no, to be a better speaker. So seriously, I know who I would want to go to. and. Seriously about that, I think that would be an honor just sometime. I wouldn't want to take a lot of your time, but just to ask you some questions offline, if that's ever possible. Oh, sure. I look forward uh, to meeting you if I'm ever back in Arizona. It would be a great privilege, sir. Last question or last uh, story that, if you can, please share with the audience is you mentioned something, too, about the close relationship between Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher during her tenure in, uh, oh, yes, yes. and President Reagan, and I know you told Yes, me. I presented a book to her in, uh, oh gosh, my Wit and Wisdom of Reagan book, and she's a frail lady, and I went to her office in the House of Lords, and she said, you know, James, he won the Cold War without firing a shot. And then she she paused with tears and said, they threw away the mold when they made Ronnie. Wow. Totally incredible. It sums it all up. It's it's so incredible that you're part of history, and everybody here on the Dr. Sky Show, I'm sure, is grateful for hearing these words, sir. I do thank you, and if you'll be kind enough to stay on the line with us as we come to the heartbreak here at the bottom of the hour, I'm most respectful of that. 
And I do appreciate your time. Let's stay in touch. Uh, learning about history and reading history is so important, as you've mentioned, uh, the words of, I think, the message that was behind Winston Churchill is what? Study history, too, just like President Abraham Lincoln also said, study the Constitution, if I'm correct. So I do appreciate your time, Mr. Humes. Uh, thank you. And ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this exciting edition of the Dr. Sky Show. Heard here exclusively on TeenTalkNetwork.com, on our flagship radio station, KFNX, News Talk Radio 1100. And, of course, we thank all the radio stations around the nation that air the Dr. Sky features. This particular format, studying about history, listening, that is, to many great speakers, those in the know, many famous people who come across the airwaves here with the Dr. Sky Show, and particularly our emphasis on science, the subjects of astronomy, space, aviation, and weather. Until next time, I'm Dr. Sky, wishing each and every one of you the best. And as I always remind each and every one, in a most peaceful and humble way, always remember to keep your eyes to the skies. Thank you, Mr. James C. Hume.